0: This is The Finch. This is Heritage 5.
1: I am not a hypothetical. I have a proven track record of how I conduct myself.
0: Hey, I'm Alex. And I'm Will. You're listening to a Heritage episode of The Finch. These Heritage episodes are a special edition where we talk about the origins and the backgrounds of local Athenian businesses and community leaders. Athens always. Information always. This is Heritage. A couple of weeks ago, you may have heard this on The Finch.
2: Former state representative Deborah Gonzalez and assistant DA Brian Patterson have been running for district attorney of Athens-Clarke and Oconee Counties for several months. But the election was upended recently with the resignation of Ken Malden. Luckily, that's changed.
1: I went and sued the governor for them. (laughs) And we won, the people won on that sense.
2: Deborah Gonzalez is now back on the ballot. Former state representative for Georgia House Seat 117 and lifelong attorney Deborah Gonzalez is sitting down with us today to talk about
0: her campaign relaunch. This is who she is and what she stands for. This episode of The Finch is on Deborah Gonzalez for district attorney.
2: Can you just sort of introduce yourself and and, uh, what you've done and the roles that you've served in the past uh, in and around Athens?
1: Yeah, so my name is Deborah Gonzalez. I am a former state representative in the Georgia House of Representatives for House District 117, which includes parts of Athens, Oconee, Jackson and Barrow counties. Um, And now I am an attorney in Athens, Georgia, um, but I'm focused right now, especially the last two years on criminal justice reform. And it is because of my work on the Judiciary Non-Civil Committee, which is all of the criminal law work, all the drugs, marijuana, things like that, that are taken up in the General Assembly. Because of that work that I got very interested in criminal justice reform and decided that that was where my focus was going to be from this moment on.
0: Then can you just describe what happened in your race and why uh, why your election was, quote unquote, unfair, I suppose?
1: Well, it wasn't that the election was unfair, it's that the election was canceled. Right. And so basically what happened was last year I had announced that I was going to run for district attorney and our current the the district attorney that we had at that point had been there for about 20 years. Um, And two weeks after I made my announcement, he then declared that he was not going to run for reelection, but that he was going to finish his term, which would have ended this year, 2020 in December. Uh, to not give the governor an appointment opportunity, right, to fill his term. And so we thought, okay, great. We're just gonna, whoever it is that decides to run, we're still running for DA. Um, and that kind of changed in February, he made a surprise announcement uh, to say that he was going to resign effective immediately at the end of the month. And that would give the governor the opportunity to appoint. That in turn triggered a law that had been passed in 2018 that basically said that if the governor appointed somebody within six months of the general election, then the person he appointed would not face an election until the next one, which would be in two years. So in 2022. So basically what that means is that the election in 2020 would be canceled, right? And the people would not have um, their choice. And, and you know, I'm a big believer that elected officials should be elected and they should be elected by the people who they are supposed to represent in that district. So once we heard uh, that uh, the former DA had resigned and what was happening, we started a real big push for the public to, one, understand what was happening and their rights being taken away. We had a petition going that was delivered to the governor with over 1,500 Uh, signatures, we had people calling from all over the county. This is what's considered the Western Judicial Circuit and that includes all of athens Clark, and all of Oconee counties, okay. Um, And so people were calling from all over, they were emailing, they were sending Facebook tests, they were doing all of these things to ask the governor, please appoint, we won our election. The deadline was May 3rd, that passed and the governor did not appoint. And and in fact, even up to today, July 15th, he has not appointed uh, anybody in that position. And so we filed suit. It was myself and four other plaintiffs. And these are all voters of Athens, Clark and Oconee. They're not just Democrats. So there was a real variety of perspective. And the idea here is that this is not a partisan issue, right, 150,000 voters lost their right to vote in this election. The election was canceled. And so our argument was that it was the law that triggered that, the 2018 law, was unconstitutional, violated the Georgia Constitution. And because it did, it triggered the 14th Amendment and therefore was a federal um, constitutional violation. And we had a hearing on June 25th, and on July 2nd, the judge, the federal judge, agreed with us. And said that it was unconstitutional and ordered uh, the Secretary of State to put the election back on the ballot for November 3rd. And so that's where we are right now. Uh, The motion was granted. The Secretary of State had to come up with a consent order by July um, 16th. So that it can say, you know, when is the qualification period going to be? How are we going to do this in November? But get that um, stated. So that's where we are right now with the litigation. And so we have uh, done a soft relaunch of the campaign. You know, getting people their yard signs and letting people know we're here and and we are going to run regardless of whoever else decides to run. We are still running for that DA seat.
2: Who is currently in the DA spot right now? Is Ken Malden still serving? And also, was this decision um, for him to resign uh, effective immediately? What does it seem to be political in any way, or like was it, did it just sort of happen uh, because of other circumstances?
1: So we don't know. I mean, I don't know why he made the decision that he did. It was. Um, a very interesting decision, consider that he is a Democrat and Governor Kemp is a Republican. So usually a Democrat would not just resign and give the opposite party the opportunity to appoint. Um, So I'm not gonna make a conjecture as to why he did what he did, he just did it and now we have to deal with the consequences of that. Uh, Who is in the seat now is his second, you know, there is a, a deputy, Uh, District Attorney Brian Patterson, who had uh, already made an announcement that he was going to run against me, he steps in as the acting DA. So he has not been appointed. So if he does run in November, he doesn't run with the I, right? He's not an incumbent because he wasn't appointed to it. He is just acting. And that's what the law says. If you have a vacancy in this manner from a death or an early retirement, then the second basically assumes the function and becomes the acting DA.
0: And how often does this happen where uh, you, you have these elections canceled and you have these vacancies filled by appointments instead of elections?
1: Well, in the DA race, not as often as as in like judge races. And that's because this law is fairly new. It was only passed in 2018. So before that, the rule is even if there's a vacancy, we are going to have an election and that the appointment by the governor would only fulfill Um, the former DA, you know, whoever held that seat, their term, right? It's not that it would automatically then get extended the way that this law makes that change. But it is very important because this happened in 2018 when they first passed this law, it was in response to another woman of color, progressive reformer kind of DA candidate, Dahlia Racine in Douglasville County. And this was why they passed this law to stop her from being able to win the seat because she was a people's uh, candidate just the same way that I am. And so they thought that they can do the same thing with me. I was willing to say, no, I'm not going to allow you to do this. I'm going to fight this and take this to court.
2: So, Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly a district attorney does?
1: Yeah, so you know the ACLU says that the district attorney is probably one of the most powerful elected officials that people know nothing about, (laughs) right? And that's basically because like judges, we're, we're lawyers. We are required to be a lawyer. For a judge, you are not required to be a lawyer. Think about that for a minute. But for a DA, you are required to be a lawyer um, and basically what the DA does is he or she heads the office of prosecution on behalf of that particular uh, judicial circuit. So many people sort of have this outdated image of the DA being the prosecutor in the courtroom, doing all the trials and banging on the desk and all of that and saying, your honor and "Gentlemen of the jury and all of that. But the reality is when we look at the way that the court systems have changed and the way that the judicial systems have changed. The DA is the person who makes those very big decisions and leads the office. They set up policy, they set up procedure. you know. So they are the ones who can determine what happens and what decisions happens in those office because the prosecutors are the ones who decide who they're going to charge. And what they are going to charge that individual with, and they have a lot of discretion. There is truly no oversight on what these prosecutors do in that office, except for the policies that are set by the district attorney, you know, at the top to say what it is or in how we are going to proceed. And you know, if you have a leader that you know looks at everything as um, only the only answer is we're going to incarcerate that there's no other tool in our toolbox, but to just put people away if they do something bad, then that's the kind of system that you're going to have, right? When in fact, what we know is that we have a whole bunch of tools in our toolbox and many different options where we do not just have to send people to be incarcerated. Uh, You know, and and the thing that's very important that we have to remember is that the job of the DA and the DA's office is about public safety and it's about doing justice. Um, And one of the biggest concerns that we have is this authority, this discretion that this individual has as to who to prosecute. And what we've seen is that when we look at our jails and who gets prosecuted, Uh, who gets the longer sentences, who are getting overcharged. We're seeing that it is disproportionately black and brown people who are doing that. And that is a function of of who then decides to prosecute them and for what. Um, It was interesting, my opponent was on a radio show last week talking about, well, you know, sometimes we have to be lenient and sometimes we have to be hard. And when you start listening to that, you have to be concerned that there can be an abuse of power, can't there be? There can be an abuse of discretion of, well, I'm going to go lenient on here and hard on there. Why? Why are you making those decisions? What we should have is a DA who's going to say, we're going to be fair and just across the board, right? We shouldn't be making these choices of being soft here and hard here. People do something, they have to be held accountable, We just don't have to be cruel about it. We don't have to be punitive about it. We can be humane and really deal with the issues of why we're having this crime. Why do we have the violence? And look at the causes, and that's why to me, The DA has to be looked at as a leader in the community, not just the person who's doing these trials in court. And it does require a different way of looking at the function and that role.
0: Uh, Earlier in one of our, I think, yeah, in the in our first extempore episode, we covered the Ahmad Arbery case, uh, and especially the judicial misconduct surrounding the case. Uh, I believe there were four uh, district attorneys that cycled through. Um, We've seen a lot of just borderline corruption within the district attorney's office and um, I guess I'm not sure how to phrase this but uh, why why are district attorney seats so political I know it's naive for me to think this but I, I'd like to believe that uh, district attorneys would be fair for everyone as you said but uh, we've seen an increasing amount of politics within the office can you just describe the role of politics within the office and why it is so politicized
1: Yeah, so I think we also have to distinguish between being political and being partisan, right? Because it is political by its very nature, the way that it's been set up in our constitution, that it is a partisan race. Unlike judges who run, you know, nonpartisan, and they have very strict rules about being objective and not being more Democrat or more Republican, DAs don't have that restriction. DAs have to run um, under a party affiliation, or if they choose to run as independent, then they have to get the uh, required signatures to get on the ballot, okay? So first, from the very beginning, they're already pitted, right? Either Democrat, Republican, they're given a label from the beginning of that. And politics is, at its core, Politics is about who has power and what happens in order to get that power, right? What I think a lot of people react to is the idea of the games that are played in order to keep that power, in order to reach that seat. And that is to me what most people complain about and where the opportunities for corruption come in is if you are willing to do anything just to maintain that power instead of doing your job of serving justice for the community then is when we're going to see these things of corruption and part of that comes from who is supporting your campaign are you getting money from bail companies are you getting money from you know the private prison industrial complex um, if you're receiving money from those kinds of organizations, then you are also, in effect, obligating yourself to their special interests, and I think that is very dangerous, and that's where we see the corruption come in, because all of a sudden you are not about public safety, right? You are about maintaining some status quo, um, because when we look at it, you know, people say, oh, there's, there's no money in crime, well unfortunately there is they might not be for the defendant but there's plenty of money in private prisons in the court fees you know in all of these other things in the bail bonds Uh, there is a lot of money that goes through this system in that way and that you know money plus power can lead to corruption if you don't have uh, the right person in there and if you don't if that person doesn't share the values of the community. And I think that's a lot of what's happening right now. You know, Athens has only had two DAs in 48 years think about that, how much, okay, you guys are young, you know, technology changes. I didn't know about TikTok six months ago. Um, So can you imagine how much the community has changed in 48 years? And what the community is asking for now is a DA that understands that, that understands that there have been changes, that there are other options, other alternatives. We have new knowledge, new science about Uh, you know, defendants' minds and helping victims. And we should be able to, in this office, move it forward in the times and use those tools as well. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when I think of public safety, I don't think, oh, the more police, the more safe it's going to be. What we know is that the communities with more resources are more safe. It's not the communities with more police, it's the communities with more resources. So how do we help get the resources to those communities so that we truly are safe? But if you can't look at it from a new perspective, if all you know is the old way of doing things, the old way of punishment and prosecution, then that's all you're going to get and that is not going to help our communities.
2: I'd like to to talk about moving forward. We spoke with John Q. Williams uh, last week, and in a similar sort of situation, uh, the sheriff's office had been occupied for the past uh, dozen or so years, uh, and and so by introducing these new bold progressive policies, uh, he was able to flip that uh, seat, uh, or you know, mm-hmm. and, and 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 get those votes. And so I'd like to talk about uh, the values you stand for, and um, and there's there's four main ones that you've outlined on your platform, and um, I know you've stood by these. Uh, since your time even as a, as a, in the House of Representatives in Georgia. So I'd like to break those down one by one. Um, let's start with uh, ending mass incarceration. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what you do as a DA?
1: Yeah, so absolutely. So we know from historical fact that once uh, prosecutors got more and more authority and discretion, um, we are that gatekeeper to who is actually going to be jailed. And, you know, I I said before that we determine who to charge and what the charges are, right, for this individual. But the other thing that most people don't think about is that right now, 97% of the cases in Athens and Oconee do not go to trial. They get plea dealed out. And a plea deal means, you know, there's some kind of negotiation between the prosecutor and the defense attorney for the defendant. So that instead of going through a lengthy and expensive trial, we can get this resolved. Well, the problem is there's a very uh, different power parity between the prosecutor and the defense attorney. And so sometimes the defendants are even at at a, you know, disadvantage right from the very beginning. And if we have a prosecutorial staff who are being evaluated by how many convictions do you get, how many years can you get these people in jail, that makes you a great prosecutor, then that's what they're gonna do, right? Because that's the way that they're being evaluated. And so if we want to lower mass incarceration, we also have to be there with these prosecutors and say, you know what, you cannot keep overcharging and piling these charges up that you can't prove. Right? You can't prove it. It's a waste of time, but you're just trying to make sure that that person comes out guilty so that your evaluation looks better. So we have to change that metric. And when we change that metric of evaluation, we will also bring that mass incarceration down. Because one of the things that we also realized, there was a study done recently that said, you know, the difference in your DA can lead to a difference in mass incarceration by up to 10% without increasing crime. Okay, so this idea of crime and mass incarceration being together is a myth. It's a falsehood that just because you have more crime, you have to have more mass incarceration. Because we have seen places lower the mass incarceration, okay, and crime does not go up. In many places, it goes down. So that's the idea of mass incarceration. It is not working. Look, 95% of people who are incarcerated return back to their communities they go back 95%. And the problem is, are we preparing them to reenter? Are we preparing the communities to accept them back? Are we making better people or better criminals through this system? And so mass incarceration is not working. It's costing us a heck of a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars, and it's not working when at the end of the day, we're looking for community safety.
0: And then that goes hand in hand with your second pillar of your platform, focusing on serious crime. Uh, can you talk more about that and how you're using uh, criminal justice as a form of rehabilitation, uh, as well as serving the role of community safe- safety along with that also?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, it, this is a system that is so expensive. It cost us twenty-four dollars to $80,000 Per uh, defendant, depending on the crime and depending on the facility that they actually end up in, um, and it's not effective, right? And so when we look at, we should be focusing on the crimes that are really doing the true damage to our community. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the quality of, of property or, or things like that. When we look at these things, you know, many times what I've seen and reviewing some of the cases that are happening in the DA's office, is we're getting a lot of these charges that are made for felonies, and then after a year, they're downgraded to a misdemeanor where the person didn't even need to go to jail. Well, why didn't you do that in the beginning? Why are we focusing on those cases that shouldn't even be in the DA's office? Because misdemeanors are under the Solicitor General. When we look at things like marijuana, and so I am 100% for the decriminalization of marijuana, we should not be putting people in jail um, for having an ounce, and we have some legislation going through trying to get that up to two ounces uh, for simple possession. It's Now, that's different from distribution or selling, right? But if you have a joint, come on. Please, (laughs) does it make any sense to go through that process and, and ruin somebody's life because they have one joint on them? I don't think, you know, we have to look at proportionality. We have to look at, we have a limited amount of resources let's go after the things that are really gonna affect life and death you know when i look at violent crimes i want to get the people who are abusing the children i want to get the rapists i want to get you know the people who are doing these home invasion and killing the people that are there um that's who i want to go after
2: all right can you talk a little bit more about uh transparency and accountability i think that's uh more important now than ever um with COVID-19, we're we're getting mixed messages from government, from people in positions of power. Why is it important to make sure that everything you say is is open to the public and clear and people understand the process?
1: Well, I think it's extremely important because we just don't know. Uh, It has been said that the DA's office is like a black box. Nobody knows what happens. Nobody knows how decisions are made. And because of that, it raises a lot of suspicion, right? What are you hiding? Why don't you want us to know what's going on? Um, and and that suspicion then leads to mistrust. And that's a problem, okay? When there's mistrust with the community, because if there is, then the community, number one, is not gonna come and, re- and report to you the things that are happening, right? Or report to you the bad actors that are out there because they don't trust you. They're worried that they're then going to be taken. And we don't have transparency. Right now, we have no official numbers of who's in the jails. We have no reporting structure of that breakdown by racial or by ethnicity. None of that is available unless you want to go and every day manually count because they put out a jail report and then manually count and manually hold that every single day. There is no reporting structure to the public at all, even though it has been on the DA's budget for over three years that they were going to implement this public portal. Where is it? Where is it? There has been nothing done for that. You know, that DA's office has never been audited. And it's one of the things that I called for, it needs to be audited. When I walk in, in January after winning, I am gonna call for an audit because I wanna know what am I walking into? nobody truly knows what's happening in that office because it's never been audited. It's never been opened. People don't know. And the education of the public is extremely important. So even, you know, throughout the litigation, I put the pleadings out there for people to read. I tell them this is what's happening. I had people have the Zoom so that they can listen into the hearing because many people have never heard a hearing on a civil rights issue right so to say look this is what's happening and then bring the attorneys to discuss what happened so that people can educate themselves and can understand because nothing is just as simple as these like it's not even 30 seconds right it's five second sound bites the six second videos that we have Um, but people need to know if they don't know then they don't know why it's important how it affects them, why they need to get involved, um, and why things are happening to them that they don't know. And the last thing is, it's about money. Uh, We are fully funded by the taxpayers, whether it's from the state or the county, this is taxpayer money. And taxpayers should know what their money is being used for, but they should also know whether the money that they are paying is being used effectively. Right, or if it's being wasted. Um, And that's part of the accountability. You can't have accountability if you don't have the transparency to know what's happening and then to hold people accountable. Those two go hand in hand.
0: And then for the last pillar of your platform, uh, developing and adopting new smart justice policies, I wanna sort of break this down piece by piece because there are a lot of parts within the pillar. uh, The first of which being establishing restorative justice programs in juvenile and superior courts, uh, we've actually implemented a restorative justice program in my high school, Cedar Shoals High School. And uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like if a, if a kid's skipping school, you don't punish this kid by uh, making him miss more school. Yeah. That that just doesn't make sense to me. And the same ideas can be applied in our criminal justice system. I just wanted to ask, what is your vision for a restorative justice program?
1: Well, I'm kind of ambitious on that. I, I was able to um, learn and take a look at the D.C., juvenile justice system and it is completely restorative justice and it's a wonderful system and you know what that does is it takes into account that the incident didn't happen in a vacuum right It also takes into account that the the person who's the victim and the person who might be the offender they come from the same community they usually live in the same neighborhoods or or they're like in the school they go to the same school right there's a lot of commonality and so the idea is we need to resolve this because we're both going to continue in this community and if we can heal what's happening between these two People, we can heal what's happening in the community and make the community stronger. And so to me, that's what restorative justice says. It gives, number one, an opportunity for the victim to have a voice in the system and say, hey, you did this and I feel this, I am hurt. Answer my question of why and let's work through this. And it gives an opportunity for the offender to say, you know, and and which has happened many times is that they don't necessarily know why. They pick that victim they don 't know why they did exactly what they did, and so it 's a real learning process for healing between them um, but i 've seen the results of what happens later years later, even after these kind of restorative justice um, you know practices uh, it just keeps reaping benefits in terms of how that community stays strong and so big proponent of the Georgia Conflict Center, who are the ones who are doing it in the uh, schools, wanna see them continue to do that. And one of the things that I've committed to once I'm elected DA is to hire a full-time grant writer to help us get more funds for these kinds of programs in the juvenile justice system of restorative justice.
2: Something that's being uh, widely discussed right now, but um, has always been extremely pertinent in our judicial system, is racial disparity and um athens clark county and your constituents if you're elected are a very diverse group as you know because you represented them before and so how would you um, tackle the racial disparity particularly in the courts because we saw in the Ahmad arbery case but we're seeing time and time again with these other cases uh around the nation we've seen this literally for the entire history of the united states that the judicial system is um, deeply Deeply um, institutionalized uh, for racism. Yes. So, how are you going to take measures to correct that?
1: Yeah, it is systematic, right? It's systematic racism that we have to deal with. Well, number one, representation matters. When we walk into a cl- in a courtroom right now in Athens and Oconee, we see everybody with white faces, right? The judge, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the jury, everybody except usually for the defendant who's black and brown. And so being a representative of the communities that are traditionally oppressed makes a big difference in and of itself. The second thing is my commitment to bring in Diversity into the office, right? And hire more Black and Brown people, hire more women, hire more LGBTQ and trans people, hire more disabled people. We need to have that representation because that changes the culture in the office so that it's not only based on what is happening, because all of those individuals bring a different background. Right, bring a different experience to the office and allows the rest of the community to see themselves in who is actually administering this justice as we claim to be in these courtrooms. Um, so that's one of the first things that I would do is recruitment, Right, who we actually bring into the office, who becomes those prosecuting attorneys, who becomes the victim's advocates. Recruitment is extremely important when we wanna do that. Two is open up a sort of community uh, committee that can come in and talk to us like an advisory group. Um, so that we can have different perspectives than just the perspectives from a lawyer or a prosecutor, right? We need to bring in those diverse perspectives so that we can do a better job in it. And that means that we need to collect the data and follow on what's happening. Sometimes we have implicit biases. Do we have a prosecutor who just seems to really go heavy on a certain type of person and not on the other one and be able to say, hey, let's have a conversation. This is what the data is showing us what's going on. And sometimes when people are made aware of something, they say, oh, you know what, I didn't realize that, right? And so then we can have that conversation and change their behavior, but we have to hold them accountable and we can't hold them accountable without the data of having it. So those are just some of the things that I would like to do and implement.
0: And then finally, uh, I just wanted to ask about I guess uh, we sort of touched on it with restorative justice the uh, juvenile courts, but uh, another portion uh, of your last pillar is investing in juveniles instead of prosecuting as adults. And I think it'd be remiss not to mention the school to prison pipeline. Uh, how would you combat that? And what do you mean by investing in juveniles um, for, for these kids?
1: Yeah, so we have some incredible youth organizations out there in Athens and Ocote, including Chess and Community, and others, um, the AEDM team social justice group, uh, Diva Speaks. I mean, these are all groups that are working out there to try to help give youth alternatives so that they don't end up. Um, either loitering in the streets or doing something that they should not do and I had mentioned before that I want to bring in a full-time grant writer I want them to go and find the funds to help these community organizations continue what they're doing but to do it in a way where it's in partnership with the office so again we have this trust with the community and their parents can see that we're not the bad guys right most of the time people will look at the prosecutors as being you know you're the one who took my son away you're the one who did this to our family you Our families away um, because there's so much that's not out there that people don't see what's happening. And so, being able to partner with these organizations, I think, will also help us partner with the community. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that people might not always agree with your decisions, but if they believe that the process you use to reach your decision is fair and just, they will accept it. And that is a big difference because right now people don't know how those decisions are made. And that's what leads to the mistrust. And that's what leads to the suspicion and this sort of hostility between the community and what's happening with law enforcement.
2: I, I really like everything that you're um, telling us and your platform. And I invite the people listening, if they wanna hear more to go to deborah 4 um, We'll put that in the show notes but I'd like to talk about your race um, this November. It's only around four months away, which is both exciting and scary for different reasons. Yeah. Um, Talk about who you're gonna be going against and uh, um, sort of this relaunch that you've just had in the past few weeks.
1: Yeah, well, I don't want to talk about him. He can talk about himself. (laughs) No, really, no, I understand. Um, Yeah, so we're excited you know, to get back in the campaign, because I've said from the beginning of the litigation, just because we win the opportunity to have the election, that's not a guarantee that I'm gonna win the election, right? It just means that 150,000 people got their election back. And so what I'm hoping is that people can understand that when they vote for me, number one, they're voting for someone who's been a champion for their rights from the very beginning. Heck, I I went and sued the governor for them, <laughs> and we won. The people won on that sense. Um, but you know, I think it's a choice that people will make between, and, and this is right now, because it is a jungle election, and let me explain that for one minute, uh, we don't have a primary, right? And even though right now my opponent is a Democrat, there could be a Republican who enters, there can be an independent who enters, but we would all enter together, okay? So it'll be one election, there won't be a primary, and then a general just be one special jungle election this November. Um, So, you know, we don't know until after qualification exactly who is going to run against me. I know I'm running. That's what I know (laughs) in that. But I think people will really, the voters will have the opportunity to see, do they want the status quo? Do they want something that's been going on for years and years and years, 48 years and counting, right? Because my opponent at this point doesn't offer anything new. In fact, he's been in that office for 18 years years, that's a whole generation, right? That's a whole generation of young people who have been affected by his decisions that he has made in those 18 years. And therefore it's affecting their families and their generations going down. And so people can decide that they want that same old, same old status quo. Let's go hit with punishment or people can decide, no, we want something new. We want somebody who can look at this humanely, who will hold people accountable. Who will apply justice fair and just across the board, right? Understanding the power and the possibility of abuse and corruption of that discretionary authority, and who shares the values of the community. Right now, if we look at what the community wants, the majority of the values that the community is asking for, you'll see that most of them align with who I am and what I've done and what I've stood for, for the past three and a half years. I am not a hypothetical. Right. I have a proven track record of how I conduct myself with transparency, how I am open to being held accountable to things, how I'm constantly out there looking for resources for the community and doing what the community needs. Um, And so that's their choice. Do you want what you've always had and the results haven't been that great? And the results are where the national averages are in terms of the oppression of black and brown people and the systematic racism. And we're going to continue that. Or we're going to say, no, these lives matter. Our community matters. And we want something different. And Deborah embodies that for us. And we trust Deborah. So vote for Deborah. DA, it's a new day, right, in November of 2020.
0: Alex and I obviously love your platform. We love what you're doing and your vision for uh, how we can reform the criminal justice system. Uh, for those listening at home, how can we support your campaign? How can we help? And furthermore, uh, where can we go to like help donate or whatever?
1: Well, thank you so much. Well, like any campaign, there are two things that we need. We need volunteers and we need money, right? Those are the two things. Unfortunately, everything costs money. Um, And we sort of got sidetracked with the litigation. So a lot of money went there, even though we had great Attorneys who you know did this work way below market, but we still have to pay them for their efforts. Um, And then there's the campaign that needs money, so that we can pay for canvassers, so that we can pay for you know getting out the vote. We're in the middle of a pandemic, so obviously we're not doing that canvassing door-to-door kind of things. But we need to spread the word. So if you have some time and you want to do some texting, you want to write postcards, you want to do phone banking, you want to you know get a Zoom call with your friends and talk about what's going on and spread that message. Those are all ways that you can get involved with us. You wanna deliver yard signs, you know, we got that too. Um, in fact, Saturday we're going to be doing a drive-by yard sign pickup, so you don't even have to get out of your car; just drive right by, and we'll put it in your trunk over at the campaign office at 337 South Millage Avenue in Athens. It's the Butler Building right across from Clark Central High School. Um, so you can go there on Saturday between 10 and 3 if you'd like to pick it up, or just let us know. Our website again is Deborah. That is D-E-B-O-R-A-H. Fourforda.com. Yeah, I'm talking too much. I forgot how to spell my name, but it's Debraforda.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on um, Instagram at dg. The number four da. That's dg four da. And we put everything up as much as we can and so you know we invite you guys to join our volunteer team we invite you guys to join our justice warriors donors team uh, because in fact this is about justice and we're fighting for justice
2: and i'd like to ask uh, one last question as we're moving into november and um you know obviously this pandemic is still raging on and there's a lot of issues that america has to face and we'll take to the polls I just want to know your your thoughts on what we're going through right now, and um, you know, what your your hopes for what will look like at the end of this year, and any sort of um, encouragement. It doesn't even have to be related to to the DA position, but having been an elected official, having been in government, um, everything that we're going through right now, just sort of what your what you've been thinking about, um, not only this summer but really since twenty twenty it started.
1: Yeah, I think um, I'm with a lot of people. Can 2020 be over already? (laughs) Because it just seems that we get hit with one thing um, after another. Uh, You know, sometimes. I I was looking at this with all this uh, controversy about wear the mask, don't wear the mask. Is it political? Is it not? Um, You know, there was a time that we trusted science and we trusted doctors. And if the doctor said, wear a mask so that you can protect yourself and others, you just wore the mask. You didn't have those questions. And to me, it's really sad that it's become a political issue and a political statement, whether you wear the mask or not. And I don't want anybody to get this disease. I don't want anybody to get hurt or to die. My uncle died of COVID very early um, when this all started back in March. And, and, you know, it still obviously hurts. And so when people say, oh, this is just a hoax. And I said, I wish it was a hoax, right? I wish we didn't have 135,000 people who have died because of the lack of action. Um, by those who are our leaders. And, you know, on one hand, I say I'm kind of glad I'm not in elected office because my God, these decisions are really hard to make when you're trying to think of saving people's lives, because this is a question of life and death. Let's not sugarcoat this in any way. This People are dying. 135,000 people have died. Um, And so trying to make those decisions and, you know, our elected officials will do the best that they can, but if the people don't follow, right? If the people decide, no, I'm not gonna wear a mask and I'm not gonna do this because it's my right, um, then we are not gonna get over this. You know, look at what Europe has done and they are over it for the majority of them and starting to reopen and the kids going to school Our numbers just keep climbing and climbing and climbing as people keep saying, well, my freedom of this, my freedom of that. Look, we wear seatbelts. Seatbelts are mandated. Why do we wear seatbelts? For safety reasons. It's the same thing with a mask. You know, you don't go walking down the street without your pants, okay? Uh, You know, it just doesn't make sense to me (laughs) sometimes. And so what I want to tell people is you want this over, you want to go to a football game, wear the mask let's bring those numbers down and when the numbers go down ma'am we will celebrate the dogs but for right now (laughs) please wear that mask um because it's the only way that we can do this it's the only way that we can get through this and that we can reopen uh until we get vaccines and those are still about a year away um and so we just have to you know care you don't care about me great care about your dog care about your kid care about your your best friend there's somebody that you must care about right even if it's yourself that you will put that mask on for them put the mask on for you so please wear that mask we love you we want you to be around (laughs) whether you vote for me or not doesn't matter we just want you here okay
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Finch. Our website, www.thefinchpodcast.com, has more information about our guests, episodes, and what we do here at The Finch Podcast. If you like what we do here at The Finch Podcast, make sure you follow us on YouTube and leave us a review and a comment on Apple Podcasts. It would really mean
0: a lot. Thanks, guys. Next time on The Finch, we speak with Dr. Neil Priest, who you may remember from our first ever episode. See you all then.